Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Church. Special welcome to those joining us from upstairs at the 01 Highland Park and at Crossroads. We are in this series uh, out of Luke called Contradictions. Of course, Jesus is a big contradiction. He is God and he is man. He is a king. He's a servant. He comes with power, but it's demonstrated in weakness. And lots of people do not understand him. We're going to see that come into focus as, uh, as he marches into Jerusalem. We're coming to a, uh, a turning point in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has been making this trip from Galilee down to Jerusalem, perfectly corresponding and timing his arrival in Jerusalem uh, for that of the Passover. And, and what is happening is all kinds of themes and plots and subtexts and prophecy and titles and all these moving pieces are now coming together. He's going to stop. He's been teaching for 10 chapters. There's more teaching of Jesus coming, but, uh, but we're sort of turning into the last six days of his life before, uh, before his death and then ultimately his resurrection and later on his ascension. So this passage, this moment reminds me of... Um, of a particular scene in Les Miserables. Uh, Les Mis is my, my favorite uh, work of fiction. It's a powerful story written by Victor Hugo in the mid-1800s. It's a, it's, a, it's a story about grace and law. It is the only book I've ever read in which I cried at the last page. I don't cry very often. I cried at the last page. I was so distraught that it was over. And, uh, and that, that Jean Valjean doesn't fully yet get grace. He still doesn't understand. He still feels like this broken person because he'd stolen a loaf of bread to, to feed his sister's dying, starving son. And he still carries the guilt of this. And you're just like, oh, you're, you're missing what, what God offers. So I, I, was, uh, I was expecting not to like the sort of stage production of Les Mis because, you know, they just never can live up. I mean, you know, wh- whatever's done on screen and, and in a play just can't live up to a novel. It just can't because you've got two hours to try and capture what could take. I mean, Les Mis is 3,000 pages, right? You just, you're just going to leave pieces out. And often in, uh, in what happens, especially in the films, is that you're going to leave out some really critical parts so you can get another car chase scene in and some other things, and more explosions, and you're like, oh my goodness. That was not at all what I was, uh, what I was looking forward to. So I was prepared to not like uh, the musical, but it's very powerful. And my, my, my favorite scene is just before the, uh, the intermission. There is a moment where all the stories are coming together in this little, you know, mini climax. And so you've got uh, Marius and Cosette who have fallen in love and they're together and pledging themselves to each other. And you've got Eponine who weighs in, say, she gets now that she's out. Marius isn't going to love her, but she's going to defend Marius. And so she stands up to her parents, the innkeepers, who are just wretched human beings. But they're sort of telling their story and how they like it. And then you've got the students that are revolting. And uh, they're... they're uh, uh, very, uh, they have very grand, naive, utopian visions about how things are going to play out. And then additionally, you've got Jean Valjean, who's the, who's the main character, and he's sort of reflecting on everything. And you have Javert, who represents the law. And so you've got like all these, and it's all to one melody, and it's just, it's incredible. And there's a sense in which that's what we're going to see. It's all coming together now in these 
in these last six days. All these themes and plots and all these. Jesus is the, is the, is the groom. He's going to his funeral. He's going to a coronation. I mean, he's king. He's, he's going to suffer. He's the Paschal Lamb. All these titles, all these prophecies, everything comes together at this juncture. Uh, remember, the Bible is not a book of advice. It's not a collection of inspirational stories. It's not a, it's not a compendium of motivational uh, morality lessons for us. It is a story. It is the story of God's love for us on display through his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, like all good stories, it starts where things are going well. But then something bad happens. And you follow the story to see how it's going to work out, right? I mean, that's why we're interested in a story. Are the good guys going to win? Are the bad guys going to win? How is this going to work out? And so uh, in the Bible, there's just a couple chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, where things are going well. Uh, And then we've got the fall. We've got everything collapsing, rebellion, sin, evil. Everything is unfolding. And in the context of, of that horrific moment and the curse and everything that's 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 coming apart God makes the promise in Genesis 3 that he will send help and um, you don't know when that help is going to come you know that help is going to come through uh, woman that help is going to come through Eve and so you read on looking for that help to arrive. And, of course, in Genesis 4, uh, the, the first family has a, a son, Cain. And you go, is this the, the, the child of promise? Is this the one that's going to fix things? Well, Cain turns out to be a disaster. And then uh, Genesis 12, you've got God saying to Abraham, okay, it, it's coming through your bloodline, right? I'm going to do everything I'm going to do through your bloodline. And so you, you follow as Abraham or Abram and Sarai at that point are trying to have a child because it's through their bloodline and that they're, they're old and they haven't had a child. And then uh, this miraculous baby is born Isaac and you think Isaac is the one and Isaac isn't the one. And so you just follow, you keep reading and keep reading and throughout the Old Testament, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and it's just you know, nope, not David, nope, not this person, nope, not that person, and you watch, and the Jews sort of go up and down, and they've got some moments of brilliance, and where God shows up, and everything goes well, and then they've got moments where they're like, oh my goodness, they're complete losers and idiots, and there's no way God can can do what he needs to do through this group. And so you watch this, and of course it builds to a bit of a Looks like it's going to happen with David and Solomon, and they're now a mighty superpower, and everything is coming together. They got money, they got they got an army, and you're thinking, okay, it's looking good now, and then that completely falls apart. And when the Old Testament ends, uh, the Jews are just limping back from 70 years in captivity. There's just there's a there's a remnant of them. They go back to Jerusalem. It's been ransacked. The temple uh, that was glorious and wonderful, that God supernaturally gifted artisans to make be this spectacular building, it's, it's gone. And so they build a little kid's fort, you know, with cushions in the living room, right? And it's like, that's our temple. And, and everything is so much less than it had been. And that's, that's where things uh, come to an end. Now there's one little 
one little cry that is given in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, Malachi says, speaking for God as a prophet, he says, the next thing to happen will be that Elijah will show up. And then you've got radio silence uh, from heaven. 400 years, nothing. No prophets. Usually there's somebody. I mean, there's a Nathan, there's a, there's a Saul, there's an Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. Somebody is speaking for God and, and guiding the people. Nothing. You go 400 years and there's nothing. And we know, just because we know history, that, that the Jews fall into captivity. They're, they're free when the Old Testament ends, then they fall under Alexander the Great, and then it gets worse after Alexander the Great dies, but then they get their freedom briefly. Uh, they get their freedom under the uh, Maccabees, and, and then they fall again to the Romans. And when the New Testament opens, uh, really, the Jews have become religious. Uh, and religion is our default mode. So we, we have this sense about us. It's everywhere. That uh, if we're good, good things will happen. Right? If I do the right thing, then God will be on my side. Against my enemies and I'll prevail. And that, that's karma. That's, that's, that, that's, uh, that's religion. That is our assumption. And it is not the gospel okay it's the the idea that if I keep the ten commandments then everything's going to be fine and and my life will will work out and then when I die I go to heaven no 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 that's not at all the message that we are to take from the bible Uh, the message is that God uh, in spite of the fact that we cannot keep the ten commandments that we can't keep our own commandments, let alone God's standards. In spite of that, God loves us and he sends his son to die for us. And so the New Testament is going to open. And when the New Testament opens, it's still confusing. But there is, you know, through the Gospel of Luke is where this opens, uh, through the angel Gabriel going to, to Zechariah and telling him that his Son, his wife is going to give birth to a son, and that child is going to take the place of Elijah and be the one to announce the coming of the king, that all the pieces are starting to come together. So we are privy to that, but it's not clear how this is going to work out. And I would, I would compare it, um, compare especially what's going to happen now as we turn into the final third of the Gospel of Luke to... Um, uh, a, a situation a friend of mine told me about. He was in charge of a, worked for a big multi-billion dollar corporation. And one of his responsibilities was to put on an event for the, the favored clients, the CEOs and the families of the senior officers for their leading clients. And it was a no expense spared one week event and the, and the goal, he said, the goal is we want to give them a week that is unlike any week they could have anywhere else. So they go, I'm staying with them because uh, I want to come back next year, right? I mean, that, that was the plan, staying with them. So you're at this unbelievable resort, and 
Everything is provided for. And you wanted to play tennis? Well, Chrissy Everett is out there. She's waiting to hit tennis balls with you. And oh, you wanted to talk politics? Well, David Brooks is going to be in the, in the next room. And he's just, he's just going to interact with whoever wants to chat about uh, politics and the election. And oh, you wanted to play golf? Well, Phil Mickelson is looking for a fourth for his, his you know, round. And, and Jerry Seinfeld's coming in for, uh, at four o'clock to just uh, tell some stories before dinner. And yeah, and then, and this goes on for a week. And then at the end, uh, the, the last sort of the big banquet, the banquet of all the banquets, they've got Colin Powell is going to speak. But after this incredible dinner, they had this little 10 minutes of entertainment with a guy named uh, Denny Dent. And Denny Dent, is, he, he had this, he subsequently passed away, but he had something called the art attack. And the art attack was he would play a song from the Rolling Stones and there's a huge canvas. And during the three minutes that this song was, was playing, he's got paintbrushes in both hands and he's spilling paint everywhere, but he paints a picture of Mick Jagger, right? And it comes together and everybody's amazed. And then he does, you know, uh, he does the doors and there's, uh, there's, uh, there's Hendrix, right? I mean, or there's Morrison. And so he, he's doing the, he does, there's three canvases. So it's clear he's going to do three of these. He does the first two everybody's all worked out, this is great, this is great. And then he goes and sits down. And uh, my friend gets up there and he says, okay, Danny, come on, there's a third canvas. Uh, you know, you got the third one, come on. I think it was supposed to be Stevie Wonder or whatever. And he says, yeah, I know, I'm not feeling it right now. And he goes, oh, come on. He goes, and he says to everybody, do we want Danny to come back up and, and, do, and do Stevie Wonder? And everybody's clapping and cheering. And, and Danny goes, nope, not going to happen. I'm not feeling it. And he goes, Danny, come on. You know, enough already. Get up here. There's three canvases. We, we paid for three. Do the third. And he goes, well, I don't know if this is going to work or not. So the Stevie Wonder song starts. And he works on this. And it's not at all clear. You know, people do not see the picture coming together. And after about two minutes... Uh, he turns around and he goes, cut. And he looks at people and he goes, look, I said I, I didn't feel it. I don't feel it. It's not happening. Sometimes, you know, everything just crashes and burns and you can't help it. And he walks off. And my friend said, uh, he goes, because there, there were two women at my table crying at this point. He says, and I'm looking around going, okay, we've just spent, you know, $2 million to have this week. And it's now coming to this horrific crash. This is not the way this was supposed to end. So, he, so I go up there and I'm trying to just fill a little bit of time thinking on my feet. How am I going to transition to Colin Powell? And he goes, and all of a sudden, here comes Dent. And he goes storming across the stage and he turns to somebody and the music goes on and he takes the canvas and he flips it upside down. And then in the next minute, he finishes the picture and he goes, and my friends, people are just cheering. They're just, they're, you, you know, it's like they saw it. Once it got flipped upside down, oh my goodness, the pieces all came together. And uh, so, so there's a sense in which that's about to happen, right? Now, not for the people there. I don't think the disciples get it, get everything that's happening until after Christ's resurrection. We know he's there for 40 days. He talks to them and he explains everything, going back to the scriptures he explains everything, and he says, see, this was this prophecy, this was this, this was that, this is how this all fits together. I don't think they got it until then. But uh, we now see the picture begin to emerge, and everything begins to come into focus as we are looking at the last week of Christ's life, and all these themes begin 
to coalesce. So, uh, I am, we are in Luke 19. I invite you to turn there, and we begin now with verse 28. Jesus has just given the parable of the talents. And the parable of the talents, of course, is this call to step up and take risks. The God has gifted us. He's given us resources and time and talent. And, and, and the last thing you want to do, if you've got those things given to you from God, is to be a bad steward and go bury your gift. Right? That's, that's the one that, that Jesus went after in that parable. So he's just told that parable. And uh, verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And he's timing again. This is important. He is timing his arrival in Jerusalem to coincide with the arrival of the Lamb into the city. So the Passover event has been going on for a thousand years. It's an annual event in which uh, the Jews come together to remember the moment when God secured their release from Egyptian uh, dominance. So they've been slaves in Egypt. They complain. God sends Moses. There's the ten plague, nine plagues. The tenth plague is, is the angel of death coming. And uh, at that point, they're instructed um, because, and, and this again, this is just how all these pieces fit together. They're instructed back then to take a perfect male lamb, innocent lamb. This is, a, this is a placeholder for Jesus at this point, right? That's what it is. Take a perfect, innocent lamb and do not break its bones. Jesus will be crucified. His bones will not be broken. That's one of the interesting things. Everybody else gets crucified, their bones are broken, but not Jesus. This is all part of the pieces fitting together. Take this lamb, kill it this way. Use the blood to paint over the doorpost so that when the angel of death comes, we'll know, okay, one of the big themes beaten into everybody in the Old Testament throughout the thousands of years as you're following Abraham, the sacrificial system, Abraham and Isaac, all these things are designed to teach this point. Sin is a capital offense. When I sin, I deserve death. But an innocent third party can die in my place and I go free. And so now, when the, when the angel of death comes, sees the blood, knows that a third party has already sacrificed their life, passes over that house. So after the Passover, of course, the, the first when the Jews go out into the desert, the Egyptians release them, they go out in the desert, and God supernaturally secures their passage through the Red Sea, and they survive in the desert for 40 years. Uh, but they were then instructed by God, every year, do this again. Right? Recreate this event. And during that thousand years, there was a lot of protocol, a lot of tradition, a lot of custom that, that has developed. During that time, it was clear that the lamb that they were going to slaughter in Jerusalem, every family had to have their own lamb. The lamb was to be brought into the city six days prior to it being crucified, three o'clock, uh, on the day before the Passover. Jesus is entering Jerusalem six days before uh, Friday when he will die. He will die at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So this is just all being very carefully choreographed. 
After he said this, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. As he approached uh, Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Okay. So this is a little odd. Again, we've got numerous themes coming together here. Jesus is the groom. Jesus is going to his funeral. Jesus is going to a coronation. Jesus, you know, all, all these different motifs. But, I mean, if he's going to his funeral, if he's, if he's going to his wedding, you would expect a limousine, not a Kia, right? And, and Matthew makes it clear that this is a donkey colt. So it's not some majestic, you know, white steed. It's a, it's a donkey colt. And um, it's interesting. This does a number of things. I mean, first of all, the fact that he knows exactly how this is going to play out, because it does play out just as he says. We'll see that uh, next. Jesus knows how this week is going to unfold. <laughs> he, knows, he knows how it's going to end. He's not, he's not hoping for some different outcome. He knows how this is going to unfold. Um, He is fulfilling a prophecy. And the prophecy was made back in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, It says there, I'm reading it, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's a, there's a prophecy that was made about the, the entrance of the king. And, and, uh, and he comes in riding a colt. Solomon had done the same thing. So the people are going to understand exactly the claim that he is making at this time. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge claim to be the king. It's also very humbly made. <laughs> he was riding in on a donkey colt. Uh, so we've, we've got... Um, We've got numerous things. By the way, the fact that he's riding a colt that has never been ridden would also get some people's attention. Because, of course, you know, donkeys and horses have to be broken in. Uh, there's a joke about the dude ranch, and they say, we've got all kinds of horses for all kinds of people, right? For, for older people, we've got older horses. For younger people, we've got younger horses. For skinny people, we've got skinny horses. For overweight people, we've got overweight horses. And for people who have never ridden a horse before, we've got horses that have never been ridden. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So, but he has power over nature, right? He can, he can make this work. So, uh, by the way, I, I, I know, because I heard this again last night, some of you go, so wh- where do you get all this? Like, I read this and I don't see any of this in here. And where, where do you get this? Uh, so I'm reminded of a conversation I had 10 years ago when uh, Joe Girardi, before he became the manager for the Yankees, he was still playing for the Cubs. And they lived in the area, and they, and, and they were attending Christ Church. And I was talking to him one day, and I, and I had heard that he was going to go be the bench coach for the Yankees. Because what the paper said is that he, he said he needed to learn the game of baseball in order to eventually be um, you know, a manager. And I said, Joe... Okay, learn the game of baseball. What are you talking about? You know the game of baseball. Good grief, you've been in the major leagues. You're a catcher. Catchers have to know the game more than the other positions. 
and you're a Northwestern grad, you're a smart guy, and, and there's just not that much going on in baseball, right? I mean, I, you know, the manager has to figure out the batting order, and he's got to figure out when to pull the pitcher, and yeah, and there's, there's steal signs, and take a pitch, and hit and run, and all, all these things. I go, but not that much. And uh, I said, so what, what are you going to learn? I go, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like a couple hour conversation with Joe Torre would be enough. And he said, yeah, Mike, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Uh, there is so much going on that I could not begin to go be a manager unless I, I study the game. So um, I just would say it, it's, it's there. Right? You read the book, you read it over, and, and over time, these things, the pieces of the puzzle start to come together. And you're reading something, you go, oh, wait, that goes back with there. So all, everything has to fit through this little funnel of the last week. There are some people that suggest that the Gospels are really nothing other than a passion narrative. The, the, the last week, the death of Christ, a passion narrative with a long introduction. And in one sense, the entire Bible is a long introduction to this week that we are entering into. So, it's all there. The pieces are coming together. Jesus has um, sent some people out to get a donkey colt. Those who were sent went ahead, verse 32, and found it just as he told them. Verse 33, as they were untying the colt, his owner asked, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Um, So just as he said, this is what you do. This is how it will unfold. Um, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And uh, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. So we're getting a, a red carpet treatment here. Jesus doesn't need a ride. He's, he's in incredible shape. He just walked for the last ten chapters, right? Jesus is fine. This is a statement. This is a claim to being king, and the people understood it that way. They're putting out a red carpet. We, we read in Matthew that they're waving palm branches. Uh, we often call the triumphal entry Palm Sunday, right? They're waving palm branches. That was a flag uh, for, for Palestine, for the, for the Jews. So during that intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, when they have their freedom, and then they lose it when Alexander the Great conquers the world, and then uh, he dies at a very young age. He hands things over. One of the guys that, that comes in charge, and they divide up Alexander the Great's kingdom, and part of it goes to this Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is, wants to show the Jews who's boss, so the first thing he does is he goes into the temple, small little temple, but it still has a holy of holies where supposedly only the high priest could go once a year. He, go, he goes into the holy of holies and he slaughters a pig, an unclean animal, to defile the temple. And this leads to a revolt. And, and when they were successful in their revolt, their flag was the palm branch. And so the flag, that palm branch is on all their coins. That was their flag. So when they're waving the palm branches at Jesus, what they're saying is, right, you're going to lead us. You're the king. Now, there's a big contradiction because they think he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to establish the kingdom like it was with David. They don't get who he is or what he's going to do. But that's what they're, that's what they're hoping is going to happen. So they're giving him the red carpet. Verse 37. <clears throat> When he came near to the um, place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices 
for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is from Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm. It's part of the whole prophecy. They're, they're making a big, bold claim that uh, they know who he is. That's who they see him as. And then peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So this is what the angels were saying back in Luke 2 when Jesus was born. This is the chorus in heaven uh, when Jesus had been born. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Now the word peace here is the word shalom. It means um, not just an absence of war, but it's a general doing well, doing well with God, doing well with others. And uh, so they're, they're declaring uh, his kingdom is coming. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Rebuke your disciples. Uh, they, first of all, they're probably scared because they, they sense a revolt coming. And it is, a, it is a tinderbox right now. The Jews were notorious for revolting. Uh, more than any other group in the Roman Empire, the Jews would revolt against Rome. And if they're going to revolt, this is the day they're going to revolt. It's Passover week when hundreds of thousands of people have charged into the city. It's their 4th of July. They're gathered to celebrate their independence. Except, oh yeah, they're not independent right now. And so that's why Pontius Pilate has come to the area. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate comes to Jerusalem because he has the Roman soldiers. And he's worried that there's going to be a revolution. And so uh, the, the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, are probably scared that Jesus is going to stir up the crowd and have a revolt. And they also see that what Jesus is doing is sort of blasphemous. Right? You can't claim to be God. You can't accept the worship and praise of people. Come on, tell them that that's not who you are. And Jesus says, I tell you, verse 40, if they keep quiet, the, the stones will sing. Right? In other words, uh, Anybody with the IQ of a rock would begin to understand who I am at this point. All of heaven is going to, uh, is going to declare. All of creation will point to me. And then verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Um, we often think of prophets, and prophets are those who speak for God to people. Priests are those who represent the people to God. We often think of prophets as being angry and uh, saying very harsh things. They, they tend to cry a lot if you pay attention. So they're not just the, the angry voice. They're often uh, a very sorrowful uh, seer because they, they know what's coming. Right? That, that's, that's part of what being a prophet is. God has spoken to them, and so they have some understanding of what's about to happen. And... Uh, and Jesus certainly understands what's going to happen now to Jerusalem. Verse 42. If you, even you, had only known of this day, what would uh, bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side. So this will happen 70 A.D. We, we date the book of Acts. Uh, so what's going to happen after the gospel's end, there's 30 years for the first part of the church, and it sort of just ends. The book of Acts doesn't come to a finish. It just sort of ends. We know it has to be written and end before 70 A.D. Because in 70 A.D., the Jews revolt again, and Rome says, you're done. That's it. 
and they send a Roman general, uh, Titus, and he wipes out the city. So literally, um, what he says, uh, verse 44, they'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So what he's saying is they're, they're going to they're gonna undo Jerusalem. And what the Romans did under Titus is they said, Jerusalem will no longer exist. We are going to plow it under, right? It cannot, we're, we're sick of all these rebellions, and so everybody has to leave, and we're going to destroy the city, and we're going we're gonna to make it no more. And so that's when Jerusalem is undone. That's when uh, Israel as a nation ceases to exist until you jump into the 20th century, 1948, after World War II, Belfort Agreement, the formation of Israel again. So between 70 A.D. and 1948, the country doesn't exist. And, and Jesus is giving that prophecy. And what he says here, um, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And the word coming in the Greek is episkopos, from which we get our word episcopal. Uh, I mean, also we translate it bishop. And so Jesus is saying, because I came to bishop you. I came to pastor and lead and direct you. I came to nurture and, and provide for you. I came to bishop you, but you, you would not accept me. And so uh, it's, it's going to unfold. And that is uh, what we will see as it begins to go forward. And so let me just wrap this up by saying... Uh, there's three, really, there's three groups of people in this, in this story, in this account here, uh, based on their response to Jesus. So, on the one hand, you've got the disciples who are following, even though they don't always understand why they're doing what they're doing. He sends a few of them out to get a donkey, and, uh, and they obey. So, there's a category that says, I don't really understand everything that's going on, but I obey. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to follow and then there's a category like the Pharisees that say, no, um, you're not who you claim to be. I'm not in. I'm not going there. Uh, you need to silence the crowds. And then there's a whole bunch of other people that fit into the crowd. And the crowd at this point is characterized by people who are for Jesus when they think that he's going to do what they want. He's going to give them power. But that's not what Jesus is going to do. And so they're for Jesus on the first couple days of the week, and then they're going to pivot. And I would just suggest to you that we, we sort of talk about the church sometimes and say, okay, we gather around Christ. He's in the center. And around Christ, there's a core group of people who say, I'm all in. I'm obeying even when I don't always understand what's going on. And then outside of the core, there's another concentric circle, and that's the congregation, right? It's made up of lots of people who are varying degrees of commitment. And then you can go out a little bit further and you say there's a crowd. Uh, and the crowd has is, is, is got people who are even less certain or committed or signed up, sold out. And then you can go out another step and say there's everything else. There's the cosmos. So you got Christ, you got a core, you got a congregation, you got a crowd, you got a cosmos. And I would just say, the goal is to be as close to Christ as you can be. And uh, 
we, we, don't get to, we don't get to dictate the terms to God about how this works out. The good news is, the amazing news is, the gospel is, we don't have to be good enough for God to accept us, to meet us where we are, broken in every way possible. You are not asked to clean up your life so that God will love you. You are told you cannot clean up your life. You cannot do that. But God loves you. But we are expected to follow. We are expected to accept and to move in that direction. And we'll see that the crowd of people who are in, when they think they get God on their terms, is a whole lot bigger than the crowd that says, oh, this could be hard, but he's still God, and I'm going to follow. Let me pray for us. Lord God, may we see ourselves, our situation more clearly, uh, who we are, what's extended to us, the opportunities, the, the grace, the forgiveness that is extended to us. May we see that. May we see um, how fickle our own heart is and how foolish it is to think that we would define the terms of our relationship with you. And may we um, better understand what it looks like to move as close to you as possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.